This week, Sears moves forward with sale process. Monotronics lenders and note holders agree on amended TSA. Energy has a volatile week, and Gas Star files for Chapter 11. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Karen Lang, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. And I'm Connor Skelding. This week, Director of Credit Research Mark Fisher sits down with distressed debt analyst Andrew Sung and our own Jim Holloway to discuss trends in natural gas with a particular focus on the Rockies Basin and Ultra Petroleum. It's Sunday, November 4th. Sears will be back in court on November 15th for a hearing on the debtor's dip motion. In the filing, the company says the hearing is, quote, with respect to the senior and junior dip financing. The debtors also filed a motion seeking global bidding procedures for its, quote, go-forward stores and other assets. The debtors had reported in their first-day papers that they were in discussions with ESL regarding a stocking horse bid for certain assets. However, the bid procedures motion does not indicate any stocking horse bid has been selected and instead provides for a process whereby a stocking horse can be selected up until December 15th. Quote, As previously stated, the debtors believe that there is a viable path forward for reorganization around a smaller footprint of profitable stores, but this path is extremely limited. Approximately 400 of the debtors' stores are four-wall EBITDA positive. The debtors intend to utilize every reasonable effort to sell these and other viable stores, or a substantial portion thereof, as a going concern pursuant to Section 363 of the Bankruptcy Code. According to the motion, the bid deadline will be December 28th and an auction on January 14th. Ascent Capital Group, parent company of Monotronics, announced on Tuesday that note holders providing requisite consent for $380 million, or 65%, of Monotronics' 9 and 1 senior notes due 2020 have amended and reinstated the September transaction support agreement with the companies and also that holders of more than 50% of Monotronic's $1.1 billion term loan have joined and agreed to be banned by the amended TSA. Pursuant to the terms of the amended TSA, the consenting term loan lenders have agreed to consent to certain amendments of the credit agreement that governs the term loan to accommodate a proposed second lien exchange and related transactions. The amended TSA contemplates Ascent making a $75 million cash contribution to Monotronics to be used for working capital purposes, and only contemplates Ascent cash being potentially used as exchange consideration for Monotronics creditors under the unsecured exchange toggle. For their part, term lenders would receive increased amortization of $9.4 million per quarter for eight quarters which would also total $75 million in the aggregate over such two-year period. If the bank amendments are not complete by the toggle trigger time under the amended TSA, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time on November 2nd, the amended TSA contemplates a toggle to an unsecured notes exchange that would include, among other things, an offer to exchange old monotronics notes for up to $100 million in a cent cash, or up to $585 million in new senior unsecured notes. It was a volatile week in energy against the backdrop of earnings, CFO departures, and M&A. Both the debt and equity of energy names, from ENPs through oil field service providers, were pummeled over the last week, 
as some high-profile earnings misses threw into stark relief investor worries over the impact of rising interest rates on the capital-intensive sector's ability to achieve growth in EBITDA and free cash flow. This, even as crude prices hold above $65 per barrel for West Texas Intermediate, the American onshore benchmark, and near $80 per barrel for Brent, the offshore benchmark. Permian names in particular have been dogged this year by concerns over takeaway capacity, which has resulted in steep discounts from Midland barrels and record natural gas flaring, as well as capital expenditures which in the second quarter outstrips production growth. More bearish investors have begun to question, particularly after oil field services giants Halliburton and Schlumberger warned of slowing activity in the North American oil patch, if the sector will ever be able to deliver above market returns. While sources told Reorg that no small portion of this week's massacre was a function of sector-wide discounting for a higher rate involvement, there was enough company-specific bad news for the gloomiest of investors. Weatherford International, whose CEO Mark McCollum is still struggling to rationalize a grab bag of businesses assembled by predecessor Bernard Durock Danner, said that fourth quarter EBITDA would decline by single digits amid, quote, budget exhaustion by ENPs and by seasonal factors that have slowed the company's unconventional cementing business. According to the company, cash flow is being affected by North American customers that have been paying a little more slowly as the overall market is beginning to soften. The company delayed its free cash flow break-even target to 2019. McDurban International was pounded after the company once again boosted cost estimates for three troubled projects, including two Gulf Coast LNG plans that came in with its acquisition of CBI, said it planned to sell two businesses that it had decided were non-core, and also sold $300 million of 12% cash, 13% pick, redeemable preferred stock and warrants to acquire 3.75% of the common to Goldman's merchant banking arm. Natural gas, pressured by a flood of associated production from the Permian and new midstream infrastructure that carries Marcellus gas to the Gulf Coast, remains out of favor, a fact underscored by Chesapeake Energy's purchase of Wild Horse Resource Development, an oil-focused Eagle Ford E&P, as part of a strategic plan to focus on crude production and decrease natural gas activity. Sanchez Energy, a gas and NGL-weighted operator in the Western Eagle Ford, also saw its notes hammered after it announced the departure of its CFO and several board additions, including a turnaround specialist. The company said on Thursday it would lower 2019 CapEx to around $350 million and focus on its Katerina asset rather than the Comanche, which it acquired with Blackstone with $2.8 billion in 2017. CEO Tony Sanchez III also said that the company was no longer targeting the Upper Eagle Ford. At the time of the acquisition, Sanchez said there were two benches in that part of the play. Jones Energy also announced the resignation of its CFO. The troubled Midcon operator announced Q3 EBITDAX of $20 million and said it would complete its hold-by-production drilling in the merge in Q4. One bright spot, interestingly enough, emerged from the long-suffering offshore sector, where the heretofore consistently grim Todd Hornbeck, CEO of Hornbeck Offshore, said that international activity was, quote, relatively healthy, and that he was getting, quote, more and more bullish every day on the Gulf of Mexico, that is. Weatherford also said that economics are starting to justify more deepwater activity, and expects more final investment decision activity toward the end of 2019 and a pickup in 2020. Houston-based gas star exploration filed for Chapter 11 on Wednesday. 
The debtors entered with a prepackaged plan of reorganization through an RSA with its only funded debt creditor and largest common shareholder, Aries Management, and affiliated funds. The plan contemplates 100% of new common equity going to the Aries affiliated funds in consideration of their funded debt claims, with existing preferred and common shareholders each receiving a pro rata share of warrants to purchase 2.5% of the new common equity. Shortly after the filing, minority common shareholders Fir Tree Capital and York Capital filed an emergency motion seeking the appointment of an official equity committee, arguing that the debtors are, quote, likely solvent and shareholders require representation. During the first day hearing, Judge Marvin Isger deferred a decision on the debtors' plan and disclosure statement scheduling motion until next week. The court scheduled a hearing on Wednesday, November 7th, to decide both the Emergency Equity Committee appointment motion and the debtors' confirmation-related scheduling motion. At the first day hearing, Judge Isger also expressed clear concern about the interplay of the RSA's fiduciary out and the default provisions under the DIP being provided by Aries, considering that if the debtors were to exercise the fiduciary out, it would result in a DIP default and permit Aries to foreclose on the collateral without court order. That default provision in the DIP was ultimately struck in the interim DIP order. Judge Isker during Thursday's hearing also focused on the releases to be provided by shareholders under the prepackaged plan of reorganization, saying that if the debtors are attempting to, quote, take something away from shareholders, it may cut favorably toward the appointment of an official equity committee. The judge expressly referred the debtors to his decision appointing an equity committee in the Energy 21 Chapter 11 cases. On the island of Puerto Rico, the Commonwealth began the privatization process for PREPA, the island's electric power authority. The Puerto Rico Public-Private Partnerships Authority posted on Wednesday a request for statements of qualifications from companies and consortia interested in managing and operating the system. The role would also include the administration of federal disaster recovery funding pursuant to a long-term contract. Christian Sabrino, the executive director of the Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority, said in an interview with Reorg on Thursday that the posting of the request was a positive step. Quote, I think it's a very clear signal to the market, to Washington, to everyone in and outside of Puerto Rico that we are serious about the privatization of PREPA. We're going to get it done, and we are carrying out a very serious, focused, and structured process to do it, Sabrino said. Also in Puerto Rico, Promisa Oversight Board Executive Director Natalie Juresco expressed concern that the Commonwealth authorized $469.2 million in tax credit agreements to private companies during the collective months of May, August, and September. In a letter dated October 31st to Treasury Secretary Teresita Fuentes, Juresco said the authorization for the tax credit agreements came despite the Commonwealth's, quote, continued tenuous fiscal position. The executive director warns that, quote, expenditures at this level would further exacerbate the fiscal challenges already faced by Puerto Rico's economy. This week also saw big moves in Puerto Rico's continuing tax reform saga. The Puerto Rico Senate voted overnight on Thursday to approve an amended version of tax reform legislation, which was initially proposed by Governor Ricardo Rossello in April. The tax reform bill cleared its first legislative hurdle on Wednesday when it was passed by the House of Representatives. Now that the Senate has also approved the legislation with certain amendments, the bill will go back to the House. 
The lower chamber could either concur with the changes or send it to a conference committee to craft a compromise version by the end of the current legislative session on November 13th. One much-discussed issue tied to the bill is the inclusion of provisions that would legalize and monetize non-casino slot machines through a so-called video lottery system. The bill seeks to raise $160 million annually through the plan to regulate and tax these non-casino slot machines. Legislative leaders have said that they remain committed to keeping the video lottery system in the bill. However, the governor's administration has taken the position that the issue needs further analysis and is not tied to paying for tax reform. Other top red stories of the week were, number one, in mattress firm, Stripes U.S. values exit lenders' 49.9% equity stake at $296 million in 2021. Number two, Diebold reports Q3 FY18 adjusted EBITDA down 19.8% year over year, revises FY18 adjusted EBITDA outlook. And number three, Talon Energy announces $400 million cash tender offer. And now here's Jim Holloway in Houston with The Week Ahead. Well, thank you, Karen. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a week which, as promised last week, will be equally larded with third quarter earnings and maybe, just maybe, an equal amount of vol. You know, that thing that disappeared during the QE period? Prices will fluctuate, as the great J.P. Morgan once said, and that's what makes a market. So welcome back. Monday, November 5th, earnings from Monotronics and Altice, Altice, however you say that, and the only day of the week with a decent amount of in-court action, so no Nerf football tossing for the lawyers, at least on Monday. DS hearings for Mossy and Gisolfi and Exco, a first-day hearing for Dixie Electric, and oral arguments before the Fifth Circuit in Ultra Petroleum's Make Whole PPI Appeal. And if, like me, you can't get enough of Ultra, I have some good news. The consent deadline for their term loan amendment expires at 5 p.m. This deadline has, of course, been extended three times. Also, on the subject of expiration, Tuesday, November 6, we have another one. PetraQuest over there in the Cotton Valley reaches the end of its extended forbearance. In Puerto Rico, a qualifying motion approval hearing, which certainly sounds important, and a cavalcade of earnings, Bausch Bausch Health, that's the former Valiant Pharmaceuticals, Malincrote, Avis, Navios Marine, Parker Drilling, Transdime, and Frontier Communications. And this continues on Wednesday, November 7th, with results from Foresight Energy, Cengage Learning, Quorum Health, and Verso Paper. November 8th, Thursday, the following companies will present their quarterly results before the stern, not completely efficient, yet just judge of the financial markets. Indo Pharmaceuticals, Windstream, and a quartet of oil patch names, EP Energy, Denbury Resources, which went big in Eagleford last week with its Penn Virginia acquisition, and Comstock Resources, much of which is now owned by the legendary Texan Jarrah Jones, owner of the football team that's based in Dallas. And last but not least, Ultra Petroleum. There is also a confirmation hearing in Topps Holdings. Friday, November 9th, we have Hertz, Bristow Group, Iconics Brands, Northern Oil and Gas, and GNC. They all report, and we also have the second day hearing in Mattress Firm. And that is all from me. I'll actually be in New York City next week, partaking of y'all's November weather. And that's all from me. Back to you, Karen. Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for all of that and more. Now Jim Holloway is back and talking to Mark Fisher and distressed debt analyst Andrew Sung on recent trends in natural gas. Thanks, Karen. 
So I am back again with uh, Jim Holloway, who once again is putting on his energy hat, uh, going to talk to us about natural gas in, uh, in the U.S. I'm also joined by Andrew Sung, who's a distressed debt analyst covering, among many names, Ultra Petroleum, which is a natural gas-focused EMP operating uh, in, in the Rockies, specifically uh, Wyoming. So thank you guys both for, for joining me today. Um, Jim, as, as I mentioned, um, you know, we're going to talk about uh, your natural gas story that you just put, uh, put out, looking at uh, all the different basins uh, in the United States, the interplay between them, and uh, what it's doing for prices locally in certain basins. So if you could start, if you could take us through the, uh, the, the situation in the United States and um, the, uh, the, the different basins around the country. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. Um, well, this is, uh, you know, the, the challenges faced by natural gas producers in the United States, I guess, are a consequence of its own success. Um, back in, in 2012, uh, according to the Energy, Infor Energy Information Administration, the U.S. displaced Mother Russia as world's leading producer of natural gas. And it's been growing really in leaps and bounds ever since. And this is due to really one thing, unconventional drilling, also known as fracking, which is not legal in some jurisdictions. But where it is legal and where operators are um, doing it, the supply looks close to limitless right now. And I've had, you know, very smart people say that to me. Um, the largest producer, of course, in the U.S. is the Marcellus in Appalachia. I think that would be mainly the Pennsylvania and Ohio parts, although it's getting over into West Virginia and Kentucky, too. Um more or less an endless supply there. And it's been, in the past, it's been constrained by a certain lack of infrastructure that can get it out of the basin and into export markets like the Gulf Coast. Well, thanks to some recent midstream additions, um, the production there is enough capacity to take care of the production to get it down to the Gulf Coast and also some room for additional production. Um, as a result of this, we've started to see the historical discount to Henry Hub start to come in some. Um, second, of course, is the Permian, uh, where it's a byproduct of crude production. And there, interestingly enough, uh, natural gas is experiencing the same sort of takeaway constraints crude oil. And a result, according to our friends at Rystad Energy in Oslo, um, E&Ps there flared a record amount of gas in the Permian in the second quarter. They also flared a record amount in the Bakken, another crude-focused basin. Um, followed by the Permian in terms of gas production is the Haynesville, which is mostly in Louisiana. The Louisiana side of the play um, allegedly has better pressure than the Texas side, and it also benefits from low costs and proximity to the Gulf Coast market and um, the exporters. And as for the Eagleford, um, oil producers have been printing money there thanks to their exposure to Louisiana Light Sweet or Magellan East Houston pricing. But the natural gas also has a good outlet also to the Gulf Coast and also to export markets. There's pipelines connecting it to um, mainly industrial users in northern Mexico. Great. So, you know, one of these basins I wanted to, to focus on uh, in the Rockies, uh, in your story, you talk about how that what what you're seeing is low pricing uh, there in that region, in part caused by the activity in some of these other basins. So, so my question is, you have um, 
these, uh, you know, this base is basically in the four corners of the United States, uh, Marcellus up in the Northeast. You've got uh, the Eagleford um, and uh, Permian down in Texas, uh, Haynesville, Texas, and Louisiana. So how do these basins from all across the country affect pricing in the Rockies? Well, it has the effect of boxing it all in, as it were. Um, Rockies gas and Midcon gas, to an extent, is now being displaced from Chicago and other northern cities um, by the Marcellus and Canadian gas, to some extent, and in California by the Permian. And just regarding Canada, it's rather frightening to um, look at the prices for natural gas there. Um, Eco prices for Western Canadian natural gas have actually gone negative. That said, it's not impossible to make money in the natural gas in the Rockies. It's just a little bit tougher, and you have to mind your costs a whole lot more. What is interesting, though, is in recent weeks, we have seen the Rockies differential to Henry Ub start to come in a decent amount. As to the why, some could be related to seasonals, cold weather, and the usual sort of pattern we that you see at this time of the year. But also, some people have observed that the good people of Colorado vote next week on a measure that would drastically curb new oil and gas weather in the state. And right now, a couple of polls are showing it passing. This could uh, crimp future supply from Colorado, to put it mildly. So that might be giving um, a bit of a lift to Rocky's gas. Thanks. So, uh, Andrew, that brings us to, to you. Ultra Petroleum, uh, you know, mentioned it's a large natural gas producer in the, um, in, in the Rockies region. Um, how have they experienced uh, this, this pricing? What's been the history here in, in terms of pricing for them? What they've realized, uh, especially versus Henry Hub? Thanks, Mark. Uh, yeah, so for a lot of those same reasons uh, that Jim had highlighted uh, with respect to Rocky's natural gas pricing, um, Ultra has historically seen a negative differential in their natural gas realizations. Um, if you just look over the past uh, four plus years or so, starting with 2014, their natural gas realizations have priced anywhere from a 15 cent to 30 cent per MMB. BTU discount to Henry Hub. Uh, this dif- differential actually widened even further in the first and second quarter this year to over 50 cents in the first quarter and over 80 cents in the second quarter as that Rockies basis widened even further. Uh, so to try to combat this, uh, Ultra has been uh, pretty active in their hedging program, which is actually required by their credit agreement. Uh, through September of 2019, the credit agreement requires them to hedge 65% of their projected natural gas volumes, and this figure drops down to 50% through March 2020. Uh, just sort of uh, thinking about hedging, um, while hedging protects the company to the downside, the flip side is that swaps also go against them to the upside, which caps its potential upside in monetizing a more favorable pricing. Uh, so one interesting thing to look for, you know, as Jim had mentioned, the Rockies basis has in fact tightened versus Henry Hub recently. Um, Ultra has Rockies basis swaps that are struck at differentials between negative 65 cents to negative 77 cents. So while differentials better than negative 65 cents would be helpful to the company's operations, uh, they would in fact then start losing uh, money on some of their hedging positions. Great. So Ultra is, is a name that we've um, you know here at Reorg spoken a lot about. Uh, the company, of course, emerged from bankruptcy last year, and then recently uh, we've seen some pressure on the bond. So if you could just give us a little more color about the, the company, uh, what, what are some of the other um, uh, other things outside of pricing uh, that have been going on here? 
Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, pricing is something that, you know, more or less an operator cannot necessarily control. Um, the, the, as far as the one major operational thing that they can control, I would say that uh, it's centered around uh, its horizontal drilling program. Um, the company had historically operated uh, by drilling vertical wells in the Pinedale field uh, within the Green River Basin in southwest Wyoming. Um, so then at the end of last year and the beginning of this year, the company had seen some promising results from drilling horizontal wells, uh, with its first two horizontal wells producing IP 24-hour rates of over 50 million cubic feet equivalent per day. And so the company had set a budget target for about 21.5 million cubic feet equivalent per day uh, for its horizontal wells and had set internal targets uh, north of that at about 32.2. So in the first quarter of this year, the company announced that it would actually ramp up its horizontal drilling program and de-emphasize its vertical drilling program. Uh, the company had made the case that uh, because of superior well economics, uh, on average, its horizontal drilling program could provide better returns at the current natural gas strip or even materially below the current strip. Um, so as a result, the company updated its 2018 guidance for the number of horizontal wells to be drilled uh, from a range of 15 to 20 up to a range of 25 to 30. Uh, but shortly thereafter, in the following quarter, the company made a quick pivot away from its horizontal drilling program, back to emphasizing its vertical drilling program. The reason for this was each subsequent horizontal well drilled came nowhere close to the IP 24-hour rates of those first two wells, and almost all of the subsequent horizontal wells' IP 24-hour rates came in well below the company's budget target of 21.5. And so the company then lowered, lowered its 2018 guidance uh, for horizontal wells to 22. So Andrew, to take advantage of the, the, the sell-off in, in the bonds, the company recently announced an exchange offer. Uh, now, REORG uh, you know, reported that as, as part of the exchange offer, uh, they'll also need an amendment uh, from their, their lenders, which um, has uh, taken a little bit longer uh, than the company uh, might have originally planned. But um, uh, let's talk about that exchange. Uh, you know, if you could tell us uh, what's going on there and what benefit, uh, if it goes through, will it be for the company? Sure. Uh, so if the, the current exchange targets uh, their, the, the company's current unsecured stack, uh, they have uh, 700 million of six and seven eighth notes due, uh, due 2022 and 500 million of seven and eighth notes due 2025. Uh, so the contemplated exchange in general terms uh, proposes uh, up to 80 percent of those two th 2022 notes, taking, uh, taking those out at 72 cents on the dollar and taking out up to 55% of the 2025 notes at 66 cents on the dollar. As consideration, uh, the proposed transaction contemplates uh, new second lien notes that would pay 9% uh, cash interest and 2% pick interest uh, due 2024, plus uh, warrants as well. Uh, so the company, uh, through this exchange, assuming that the maximum uh, the maximum amount is exchanged, uh, could reduce total debt by approximately 250 million, uh, and that doesn't even include uh, potentially paying down uh, its outstanding revolver, which would be another 58 million potentially. Um, so while this proposed transaction would reduce uh, balance sheet leverage and could potentially be uh, accretive in the near term to the equity by uh, capturing the, the bonds discount to par. Um, we believe that the proposed exchange tra transaction actually does very little to conserve cash 
as the actual cash interest savings are minimal. Uh, but one area where the exchange transaction would be beneficial um, is that it would provide the company with some added breathing room under its net leverage maintenance covenant of 4.5 times through June 2019, uh, given that the company would be taking out these notes at a, at a pretty substantial discount to par. Um, so over the next year or so, if the proposed exchange trans- transaction actually does not go through, uh, we think that given EBITDA pressure, uh, the company may need to seek an amendment to its credit agreement, uh, allowing for added relief under its net leverage maintenance covenant. And then just lastly, away from the exchange transaction, uh, one other thing that we've been keeping an eye on, um, we uh, sort of looking at the recent borrowing base redetermination. Uh, which was uh, originally at 1.4 billion and redetermined lower to 1.3 billion, uh, that effectively reduced the company's revolver availability and thus their total liquidity by about 100 million. Uh, so we're going to be keeping a close eye on that, um, just sort of how that affects the company's overall liquidity position uh, over the next uh, six to 12 months or so. All right, so Jim, let's bring it back to sort of the overall natural gas picture. Um, you know, one specific that specifically for um, one thing that could help Ultra uh, here, as you did mention, that um, spreads have uh, narrowed recently um, from from the Rockies. So we'll see if that continues. Um, but but overall, uh, you know, to get natural gas prices up, you probably need some some demand drivers. So uh, if you could talk us through what are those uh, demand drivers for natural gas going forward. Right. Uh, in the U.S., it's going to be ongoing use by power generation and industrial customers. And, and power generation, a lot is, um, you know, coal burning plants are retired. Um, but the biggest driver, of course, is going to be the export trade um, to Mexico, like I mentioned, but also shipborne to China and India and other parts of Asia. You know, outside of pipe, natural gas can't really be transported until it's liquefied. So what a lot of people in the industry are waiting on is the completion of these complexes along the coast that can liquefy natural gas and load it onto ships. Um, There's only one right now um, along the Gulf Coast. That's on the Sabine Pass between Texas and Louisiana. Um, There's additional ones under construction. There's Cameron in Louisiana, Freeport in Texas, both of which are being built by McDermott, and also Corpus Christi in Texas, which is being built by Chenier Energy, which runs the Sabine Pass facility. There's others being planned and considered. Um, It's probably safe to say, though, that natural gas producers would like as much capacity as can be built as soon as it can possibly be built. But the midstream folks tend to be somewhat cautious in the planning and approval process for projects of these size and complexity. They like to have committed volumes. They they like to know that there's going to be a certain amount getting there. Um, And these projects can get very messy in the the construction phase. You can look at uh, McDermott's third quarter for that. Anyway, who among the producers will benefit? Um, Theoretically, every basin can participate in the export market. Uh, The demand from overseas is there. According to rejections, it's largely going to be a matter of getting the capacity at the export terminals, um, liquefaction capacity. Um, Movement towards a port uh, export terminal on the Canadian side of the border would probably be good for everyone. They have to build a pipeline across several provinces, I think. Um, but all this said, I think um, $2.5 to $3.5 gas price is probably going to be here for a while. So um, producers are going to have to just learn to make money in that kind of environment. Thanks, Jim. And, and I'm glad that you brought up McDermott because 
they talked about some uh, cost overruns or continue to talk about cost overruns in these facilities, which uh, hurt results. And I understand on Monday, they're going to have a question and answer session with investors uh, to discuss um, some of the other issues. So hopefully they'll give us some more answers on what the cost situation looks like on these LNG facilities, since they're so important for natural gas demand going forward. In the meantime, before these facilities are built, you mentioned that operators have had to flare gas. Uh, is that a permanent solution? No. Um, you know, however much it's it's kind of a, you know enjoyable to see natural gas flaring. You know, brings back memories of all the great you know heavy metal shows I saw in the seventies. There is very strict regulations around it. Um, North Dakota, for instance, um, has a requirement for operators to capture eighty five percent of that gas. And uh, this year, of course, a lot of them have been going all the way through that. In Texas, the Railroad Commission allows for flaring when existing pipelines have no more capacity, and they can issue flare permits for 45 days at a time for a maximum of 180 days. There's also a certain window they give you around the drilling and completion phase of a well. Uh, you know, a lot of these regulations have to do with safety for the guys who are working in the field, and some other come from the environmental movement. So um, I guess maybe to an extent, one's views on flaring may be informed by one's views on climate change. Um, but in purely economic terms, though, I think operators would probably prefer to sell that gas, even at a nominal price, rather than burning it off. So I think it's just largely a matter of waiting for the um, for the midstream capacity to coming on, to come on from the Permian, um, an increase in the export demand um, to Mexico, and that will come, but just uh, it's probably still going to be a few years out. Thank you, Jim. And Andrew, thank you, too. This has been very informative. Um, thank you, our listeners. And Karen, back to you. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg podcasts on our media page, or if you're not a subscriber, on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Karen Long, and this has been The Week in Reorg.